Uh, didn't Clinton the team sound great this morning? Amen. Yeah. You know, I, I got up this morning and I looked around and I'm sitting here and I'm looking out here realizing that uh, I still have a lot of dear friends in western New York and um, some of them will tune in and, and watch on YouTube Live. I don't know if we can turn the camera to look out the window to show them the sun uh, while they shiver and watch the bills. So anyhow, yeah, I'm so grateful to be here. Oh man, amen. You know what makes me even happier? Yesterday, um, I, don't, I don't see them here. Yesterday, uh, I was running around doing all kinds of stuff and you know, every now and then I'd waste some time to go and take a look at Facebook, and I saw some posts on Facebook that made my day, oh my goodness, some of you may have seen this, yesterday uh, was the final adoption day for Levi Bear, amen, yes, I'm so excited, uh, so, you know, and, and, and adoption is such a beautiful picture of God's love for us, that's why Paul used it, in fact, my favorite word is the word that Paul used. It's my favorite Greek word, and that is hoiothesia. Um, I won't try to spell it, but um, it's, uh, what it refers to is to place in the condition of the son, which in the time was the highest um, place you could be in the family, you know, as, as a child, is the, is the son. And so uh, it also says, Paul also tells us in uh, Romans 8 that uh, as adopted sons, we, whether we're male, female, slave, free, Greek, Gentile, or Jew, Gentile, <laughs> whatever you read, um, Galatians, um, but that we are co-heirs with Christ. Uh, and what does Christ have? What is his inheritance? Man, so I love that. I just love that picture, and uh, I do hope and pray that uh, we see many more uh, just embrace that that family model. So if you do see the Bears, give them all big hugs. Tell them we love them. And uh, yeah, they are an example to us of, of, of the faith. Uh, we're going to go into Jonah 4. We're going to close out the book of Jonah today. Um, it's going to be a good day. Um, hopefully I don't make you cry. Um, Jonah 4. Let's just start out. Jonah 4.1 says, but it displeased the, uh, okay, let me start again. <laughs> Jonah 4.1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he, uh, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant 
So it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> and the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not? Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Our good God, we ask this morning that you would bless uh, the Bayer family and their sweet Levi. God, thank you for the gift of adoption and how that points to your love for us. We ask, O oh God, that many more families in our midst would do the same and thus be a picture of what it means to be a Christian and to enjoy your good promises. God, we come humbly before you to hear your word, to wrestle with our own hearts and attitudes, to be drawn to your good character. God, may we be people of mercy because we follow you, our God of mercy. We gladly submit our hearts and our minds to you right now, our good God, as we open your scriptures this morning to learn from you, to grow, to know you through your word. And we give this time over to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, just before, just hours before his execution in 1989, Ted Bundy was interviewed by Dr. James Dobson. Some of you may remember this. I was in the seventh grade, and I was living with my dad in Fullerton. He was a police commander in La Palma, which is near uh, Knott's Berry Farm there and, and uh, Buena Park. And he identified as a Roman Catholic, but probably hadn't been to Mass in more than a decade. My mom was an evangelical Christian, and James Dobson was one of the most influential evangelical voices of the time. In the interview that took place the evening before he would die in the electric chair, Bundy claimed to have placed his trust in Christ. He warned of the dangers of pornography and claimed that is what led him down the road to some of the most vile and depraved sexually driven murders any of us will ever hear of. Ted Bundy confessed to 30 horrific murders, including that of a 12-year-old girl. And there may have been many more. Dobson seemed convinced that of Bundy's sincerity and believed that he was saved, which led many evangelicals to agree and to celebrate the idea that God could save even a cold-hearted, sociopathic serial killer. My mom was one of those. She had like kind of this newfound passion for God's grace for even the worst of sins at this time. Many others, though, including my dad, believed that Bundy was simply blame-shifting to pornography instead of taking responsibility for his actions and that he was too much of a sociopath to ever turn to God. I'll never forget the day Bundy died. It was January 24th, 1989. I lived with him, 
My dad came home. He was on cloud nine. Having followed the case and even been involved in the search for Ted Bundy, his sense of justice was piqued with that case. He came home from work nearly dancing. He was jumping up and down. And, and Jeff, Jeff, he says. And, and I don't know if I have ever seen my dad that jubilant. Normally, he was just this pretty stoic, reserved person calmed by cigarette after cigarette right? But he was flat out giddy that day. And he walked in the house and the first thing out of his mouth was a dark joke, which I will not repeat because I like my job. Um, it's funny. Um, yeah, Charlie knows it. Um, <laughs> it didn't phase me because I'd been around cop humor my, my entire short life. It's cop humor is like, you know, firefighter humor or emergency room doctor humor. It's a coping mechanism. Um, and, and, you know, it just didn't faze me. But the neighbor's wife, who he also repeated the jokes, joke to, was not quite as impressed. Um, but, but my dad could not have been happier that Bundy had been executed. And dad just couldn't stop laughing at his own joke. He'd keep telling it ad nauseum to everybody around. My dad was overjoyed because in his, his entire life was defined by a strong sense of justice. So when he was talking to me about that idiot James Dobson who bought into this sociopath's claim to be going to heaven and then blaming pornography for his murders, and then I suggested that God could forgive even Ted Bundy's sins, my dad was not so jubilant, he became angry. His mood changed. And this is what he said. He said, any God that would forgive somebody as evil as Ted Bundy cannot be a good God. Just the thought that Ted Bundy might not be in hell made my father furious. Now, I have my own questions as to where Bundy is at. He did seem to withhold some things from investigators that I would think a Christian wouldn't, but... Judging Bundy is not my job. It's, he could be either place. It's not my place to say. The reality is God can and does save people as evil as Ted Bundy. In fact, he did it with an entire city full of them, didn't, it? didn't he? Nineveh. Those people reportedly made furniture out of the people they conquered. Ted Bundy would have felt right at home in Nineveh. My dad's attitude towards Ted Bundy was reasonable because he had spent his life seeking justice for victims of crime. That's who he was. In fact, I'll tell you, just before he was diagnosed with dementia um, a few years ago, um, there was a 1974 murder case that came back into light that he had been the initial investigator on, um, and it was solved through DNA evidence just a few, few years ago. Um, they were able to extradite the guy from Seattle or the Seattle area, bring him down. The guy was tried, convicted of murder. And I will tell you the sense of satisfaction in my dad's voice was nothing short of telling exactly who my dad was. He loves justice, right? And he saw justice. Boy, his, his demeanor was just so enthused that he was able to see justice. In the same way, it was not unreasonable for Jonah to desire justice when it came to Nineveh. 
That's why he became angry. That's why he saw God's mercy as being evil when God spared Nineveh. The problem isn't with Jonah's sense of justice. It is with his warped sense of God's mercy. You remember our baptism service a few weeks ago. We discussed Jonah chapter 3. And Jonah chapter 3 is beautiful because it paints a picture of God's mercy and the repentance of unquestionably evil people. And in the end, all of Nineveh repented. They demonstrated their repentance through grieving and through fasting, and God relented, and he did not destroy Nineveh. But prior to that, Jonah had run from God. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction and tried to flee across the Mediterranean Sea. God sends a storm, threatens to break up the boat, so eventually he gets yeeted out of the boat, and, and God sent a great fish or whale or something to that effect to gulp him up and take him back to shore. He spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and then he's yacked up on the beach. Jonah gets the point. He goes to Nineveh, but he still had no interest in seeing the genocidal, sociopathic people of Nineveh spared of God's judgment. My thinking is that he was probably the worst evangelist of all time. I can't. I can't imagine this message of doom was undergirded by a call to respond to God's bottomless well of mercy. And good thing for the Ninevites that their response was not dependent on Jonah's presentation. Here's an interesting thing. If you go forward into the Gospels, Jesus on a few occasions, he sends disciples out with a mission to bring the good news to various towns. And he told them that if the message wasn't received, wipe your feet, move on to the next town. What God never said was, if they reject you, they must not, you must not have done it right. If they reject you, you must have said something wrong. You made a mistake. That's not what God said. And that's because the results were not dependent on the presentation. They were predicated on God's sovereign decree. When we demonstrate the gospel to the people around us, we don't have to be afraid that we're going to mess up the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in their lives. He's pretty good at his job. You're not going to screw it up. So Jonah preaches, probably a horrible sermon, and Nineveh repents. I can relate to Jonah there too, huh? Uh, Jonah 4.1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. You may have noticed that I, I've been pretty hard on Jonah over the last few weeks, and and I would say that that's because I believe that Jonah's defiance was stupid to the highest degree. But, you know, in, in seminary, I heard this over and over again, uh, this mantra that the best sermons are the ones that you must preach to yourself first. Before we started Jonah, we went through Titus. Titus looked at how faithful leaders follow God. And it seems that Titus was one such leader. But if I'm honest, then you put Titus over here and you put Jonah over here, I identify way more with Jonah. Because here's the thing. You think Titus, he, he, do you think Titus ever preached one sermon that where somewhere between 100,000 and a half million people responded? Jonah did, and it wasn't because of Jonah. You see, because this, my hope should never be in my ability to preach or to lead. And thank God for that, <laughs> right? It needs to be in God's ability to overcome my weakness with his unending 
mercy. Here's a cool thing. God does overcome us, and he does a work in and through us that we could never do on our own, and then he rewards us for it. That's the gravity of God's grace. All of that said, Jonah's reaction was not irrational any more than my dad's response to the execution of Ted Bundy. The problem wasn't with his sense of justice towards Nineveh, but the fact that he could not accept that God would give the same mercy to them that he had been given. That's why I don't want to, or that's why rather why, why, why Jonah didn't want to preach in the first place. He knew the, that, that, that the prophetic condemnation would inevitably be accompanied by an opportunity to respond. This is what John Corson said. Jonah was angry that history's most vicious people got saved in history's greatest revival. Verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Because I knew you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And you have to ask, how can someone say that angrily? And then you turn around and look in the mirror, right? That we like God's mercy when we deserve his justice, but we're often offended by his mercy when we want justice for a wrong that's been done to us. At least Jonah was honest about his complaint. I think that's better than I do sometimes. Can I be honest enough with myself and humble enough to recognize that my complaint is with God's goodness? Do I recognize that I don't want to share the mercy God's given me with the people I don't like? Think about that person. This, this might hurt. Think about that person who has hurt you most in your life. Think about that person who's hurt you most and then hang on to that for a moment and let's look at Psalm 145.8. Psalm 145.8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now apply that to the person you thought of. God did not create our hearts to be able to hold anger and resentment when we do that, it turns into bitterness, which erodes us into something that we are not created to be. It destroys our functionality as image bearers of God and renders us functionally useless to the people around us. Bitterness is rooted in the kind of pride that makes my sin better than the sin of the one who harmed me. I must acknowledge that I am in just as much desperate need of God's mercy and forgiveness as any other depraved sinner. Corson said, forgiveness is the deepest need of man and the highest achievement of God. J Jonah has an issue with God's character. You know, that's normally the objection of unbelievers. So I, I grew up in law enforcement families, and I spent a lot of time in the police station break room eating donuts. I promise they were there. I promise you. It's, it's, not, it's not just a stereotype. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but there were. So, um, and, and I'd sit there and listen to officers vent and tell very questionable jokes to each other. And I can say that in law enforcement, there 
is a sense of justice that makes it extremely difficult for them to accept that one of them, one of the good guys, could possibly suffer in hell while the bad guys, like a serial killer, could end up in heaven. It, 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 their lives are wrapped around the responsibility of being the good guys that are out to catch the bad guys to protect the rest of us. And, and I say it in those terms because that's what I grew up hearing, good guys and bad guys. That's the language. And, and in fact, as a chaplain, and, and the language has changed some because um, the narrative, we have to be a lot more careful as to um, how they present themselves. But as a chaplain, I can't tell you how many times I, I spend a shift with an officer who would invite me to his patrol car with the expression, let's go get some bad guys. <laughs> right? And the heart behind that is good. Oh, I'm glad they have that heart. Oh, I'm glad they have that heart. It is a good thing. It's what keeps the police motivated to keep their communities safe. But there's a challenge that comes with it, and, and, and it's the challenge that makes mercy very, a very difficult concept to grasp sometimes. In fact, I was talking to Charlie earlier today, and, and uh, he, he, he mentioned the same thing that, that, uh, that I did, that basically when you, when you go in and you're hanging out with a, a group of police officers, you can tell almost right away which ones know Jesus because they understand mercy. Um, they, their, their sense of justice is complete. See, the, the sense of justice in law enforcement is great, but it's complete when you know God's mercy. Yes. And that's the only place we see that mercy. Don't get me wrong. Most law enforcement officers that I know are substantially more patient and understanding than the average person. Definitely more patient than I am. And they understand people make mistakes. And they bear with some pretty tense, difficult situations with great patience. But their sense of justice makes the gospel harder to understand. And once we understand grace, however, our sense of justice becomes complete. We, we can be glad and happy and even rejoice that there was justice for the victims of Ted Bundy. We can rejoice in that and still not be bothered by the idea that we could possibly be worshiping alongside of him or someone like him for eternity. John four, or, uh, Jonah 4.3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What's Jonah saying here? It's better that he dies? Listen, God wouldn't let Jonah die in the Mediterranean Sea. He survived in the belly of a fish for 72 hours or so. That doesn't happen, right? And he's still suicidal. Like Jonah's bitterness had at this point reduced him to wallowing in this suicidal pity party. He, he had lost any understanding of the value of his own life. And that's what bitterness can reduce us to. It will take our lives captive to the point that we may not even value our own lives. Where living itself becomes a curse. Verse 4, it says, The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? God's asking Jonah what right he has to be angry. And, and that word do well, it's connected with beauty and rejoicing. So literally what's being said, what right does Jonah have 
to allow his anger to rob him of joy. What right does he have not to rejoice at that which is upsetting him right now? See, when we hold on to anger, when we refuse to forgive and we allow bitterness to take root in our lives, we will likely find ourselves in a form of depression that can really only be helped by dealing with the source, with the bitterness. John Corson offered 10 steps to overcoming depression. The first one, step one, write this down. Do something good for someone else. Go ahead and write that down. Okay, you got that? Okay, step two. Repeat step one nine times. <laughs> now, that's not to negate clinical depression where, they, where you need the help of a medical professional. That, that's just as real. Uh, but I do believe that for many of us, depression can come as a result of bitterness and unforgiveness. And the answer to bitterness is mercy. And I think for some of us that deal with depression... Mercy might be the answer. And if you are seriously clinically depressed, you know, there's, it is good to find the right help for that too. Sometimes when we can let go of, of the bitterness and put the needs of, of others ahead of our own, we find that our problems start feeling a lot less important. When I go and feed someone who's hungry, my budget problems don't seem so big. When I weep with someone who is grieving, my discomfort doesn't quite seem so uncomfortable. Verses 5 and 6 says, Jonah went out of the city sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah gets away from the city. He sets up some sort of shelter that's clearly inadequate so that he can sit back and hope that the Ninevites are insincere in their repentance so that he can watch God rain doom down on their doomed heads. One of the words that might describe Jonah's shelter is a lair. Now, I can see Jonah hunched over in his lair like a bridge troll, right? Like, or like Gollum. Like, have you seen Gollum on, on uh, Lord of the Rings? He's this little creature, and, you know, can you see him like, any time now, God. Smite them. Smite them. Right? <laughs> that's because that's I can relate. I've dealt with bitterness. I think Golem on Lord of the Rings is a good picture of bitter, what bitterness will do to us. Yahweh sees the condition of Jonah. Have you ever watched... Is ever, who's watched Lord of the Rings? It's a great movie. Did you ever kind of feel sorry for Golem? When you see it, right? Because he, he's sad. He's got these big puppy dog guys, but he's also evil. He's like evil and sad at the same time. He's got this conflict within him. And God sees the empty shell of what Jonah had become in the inadequate shelter that he made. 
and he provides a plant. It's probably a castor bean plant. They grow very quickly in the heat, and they have huge leaves. And then they also wither very quickly if you damage the stalk at all. But the word appointed is extremely important. The word appointed, God, God appointed the fish. He appointed the vine. He appointed the worm, which we'll see, <coughs> and the wind. Um, H.L. Ellison said uh, that the, the, this is not just due to a lack of stylistic ability, but is intended to stress the divine initiative and sovereignty. In all of this, God is continuing to reveal Jonah's inadequacy and sovereignly overcome it by his mercy. Jonah failed to obey. God made him obey. <laughs> Jonah failed to outrun God in a wooden boat because that might have worked, right? God captured him. Jonah failed to kill himself and God rescued him. He failed to recognize his own sin and God revealed his sin to him. And he failed to comfort himself and yet God brought comfort. And now, God is sovereignly working his way back through Jonah's inadequacies, and he begins to provide comfort from the blazing hot sun. But in order to continue to reveal his sin, God would then have to remove that source of comfort. Up to this point, nothing had made Jonah happy, and Jonah's exceedingly glad for this plant, is what it says. Now, God had pointed out his sufficiency in light of Jonah's inadequacy. Now he's ready to excuse me, ready to make his point. Jonah 4, verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. One thing we need to be asking ourselves as we study the Bible, or even just read the Bible daily, we ask, what does this say about God? So here God appoints a worm or maggot or something to that effect. He, he, he doesn't just see the worm inching by and entice it to munch on the stalk. God wasn't just making this up as he went. God or rather, this passage demonstrates God's intentionality. God caused the worm to eat the stalk. He didn't ask the worm and hope it listened. The worm was wiser than Jonah. It didn't try to flee from God in a wooden boat. The worm knew that there was no other option and that God was going to have his way one way or the other, and it obeyed. The worm obeyed. The weather obeyed. The great fish obeyed obeyed. Nineveh obeyed. Even the pagan mariners obeyed God. The only one that resisted God was the one who knew him intimately, his prophet Jonah. And God had his way with him anyway. It may seem a little mean to us that God would give Jonah relief and then take it away, kind of like a bad joke. But God is fully intentional about his decisions and his actions. God took the shade of the plant away and replaced it with a blazing hot Sirocco wind that was worse than the sun that Jonah was protected from in the first place. 
Verse 8 tells us the wind came and the sun beat down on him. Again, here we get Jonah with the suicidal thoughts. He's literally asking God to kill him. Jonah says he's better off dead. Does Jonah really know what's better at this point? Like, who's Jonah to be telling God what's better? Who am I? Romans 11, 33 through 36. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Yeah. You ever you ever pray and find yourself trying to convince God that you've thought this through and you know what's best? You ever done that? Am I the only one that has to repent of that foolishness? Like, <sighs> Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He says, yes. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah's bitterness had grown so deep that only his immediate comfort had any value to him. If we allow bitterness to fester long enough, our vision becomes so narrow that even our selfishness is reduced to our immediate whims. Notice that God's repeating the same question that he asked when Jonah was upset about the Ninevites being spared. Is it right for you to be angry? This time it's about the plant. God killed the plant. God did to the plant what Jonah wanted done to Nineveh. See, Jonah would have rather had the plant spared and the Ninevites destroyed. He wanted the opposite of what God wanted. Jonah would rather be dead than acknowledge his own hypocrisy. Jonah declared the plant worthy to live and had personally condemned the Ninevites. His entire worldview at this point is hinged on his immediate comfort. One of our problems when we're expressing our faith is that we tend to tell people how good it is for them to, if they trust God. One popular pastor actually said that we should be preaching that following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life. It's partly true. And it's a great sales pitch, but the narcissistic form of Christianity that follows that logic is simply not sustainable. At some point, we discover that God does not exist for my comfort, and Jesus didn't die to make my life better. The blood of Jesus was not spilled to purchase temporal comfort, but to secure eternal mercy for even the most depraved of sinners. Jonah was so self-absorbed at this moment that God had to spell out the hypocrisy in his heart. This is what he says. And we're going to close the book of Jonah with this verse, with, the, with these two verses, 10 and 11. It says, The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Also much cattle. God's message is clear. 
The Apostle Paul expresses the heart of a believer like this in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21. Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the, that's the Christian disposition of mercy. In fact, the entire answer to bitterness is mercy. We should not rejoice at the misfortune and suffering that comes upon the ungodly, except the New England Patriots. <laughs> Jay Sklar said, the Bible tells of a God who delights to show grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness to sinful humanity. If we, as image bearers of the everlasting God, are to be like Jesus, how merciful will we be? Now, before we close up, I, I have one little exegetical note I want to point out. Um, so that we can understand this rightly. Jonah references 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. And, and, and usually there are two primary um, thoughts on that. The first is either he's just referring to the young children because they don't know the right hand from their left and they can't be quite as sociopathic as Ted Bundy yet, right? So maybe God's pointing out how sick it is to not care about the kids. The other option is that maybe God's referring to the spiritual condition of the people as a whole. Now the second way would make more sense if we're just talking about the city limits because the city itself of Nineveh was only, at its biggest, was probably only about 175,000 people. But we're probably, I mean, it take, took Jonah three days to get across it, probably referring to the wider area, which including the, the rural and the suburban areas of, of Nineveh. And some people actually suggest that God spared more than a half million people so the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know which one it is. And, and if we try to argue about it all day, we're going to miss the point. The point is that what is perhaps the most wicked city in known history was spared of God's wrath. And it's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, no matter how you count them. The other takeaway is that it is God's business whom he saves and ours to obey him when he wants to use us. Did God need Jonah's cooperation to save Nineveh? No, of course not. Did God need Nineveh's cooperation to save Nineveh? I would contend that he didn't. It's God's prerogative. That's what it says in Romans 9, 14 to 16. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means! For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. See, Jonah, no matter how he responded, was not going to upset God's will or plan. When we read the Bible, we have to remember that it is first and foremost a book about God. This is the means by which God has chosen to reveal his good character to us. What does the book of Jonah reveal to us about God? God is intentional. 
God is long-suffering. God is sovereign. God is merciful. And God's forgiveness is endless. Jonah is not happy with God's free choice to save whom he will. Who's Jonah to judge God? Who are we to question God's freedom to save whom he will? So what role is it that we play in God's plan of salvation? Realize we have a similar missio day mission from God that Jonah did, and we can find it in, at the, in the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And I know that we uh, fall on this quite often. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Will you flee God's mission? Or will you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and be obedient to your merciful God? You might notice the book of Jonah doesn't have a resolution. It's open-ended. Kind of weird, right? So whatever became of our disobedient prophet Jonah? I believe, and I think the best Bible scholars agree, that Jonah wrote this book. And I believe that he left the ending out because he didn't want to distract from the stark warning he's giving us. Here's the thing. If Jonah wrote this book, it isn't just a narrative. It's a confession. He goes on to reflect his experiences. And in order to make this confession, he would have had to repent of his anger and his sin. See, Jonah didn't end on a dark note or a joyous note. He didn't end at all. I believe he left the story open-ended because he knew it would be my story. He knew it would be your story. For some of us, the story would end on a sad and disappointing note. But for others... It would end with a joyous praise of God's mercy in our lives and those around us, no matter how bad we've been hurt. As we move into a time of communion, what will your confession be? Will you confess that you have a right to be angry? Will you confess your disagreement with God? Will you confess that you're better off dead? Or will you confess your sins and your utter dependence on God's mercy and offer thankfulness for Jesus. We're warned in the Bible that if we receive communion in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on our heads. If you aren't a believer, or, or if you need to make something right first before you partake, we ask that you would re refrain from receiving today. And then see myself, or see Clint, or one of our elders, one of the leaders in the church, so that we can pray with you and help you take those next steps if if we can. But for the rest, please take this time, just a short time, to look upon the elements, confess your sins to God, receive this picture of God's covenant with thankfulness and humility. Let's pray. 
Holy God, we confess our sins to you. Our anger, our bitterness, our pride. Make us people of mercy as you are merciful. Lord God, remove any root of bitterness that we may be clinging to. Help us to be people who are slow to anger, quick to forgive, and willing to lay ourselves down for those around us. Oh God, we are desperately sinful and rely completely on your mercy. Oh good God, fill us with your spirit that we may be like you. Holy God, let us understand more deeply your great love and grace for us. And may those things guide us as we seek to serve others as we serve you. God, help us to love those around us the way that you love them. And to be grateful for your great mercy that overcomes our sin, corruption, anger, and bitterness. Lord, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this bread and this cup. You have given us your unending mercy that we may be people of mercy. And it is by that great mercy that the blood of Jesus' broken body flowed down that painful, rugged, and beautiful cross. Oh Lord, grant us humility as we prepare to receive this holy and sacred meal in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Carefully remove the piece where the bread is here. You could take the bread out. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 declared, For I, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake. Be careful as you open the grape juice side. We don't want to spill that on your clothes.
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Paul continues, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh God, we thank you for your great mercy. God, we long to be in your holy, everlasting presence. Lord, to serve an eternity with you on your terms in your kingdom forever and ever. God, we see your perfect blood covering our stains. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we give ourselves over. We surrender to you as we end our week. We enter the mission field that you have called us to. And God, I pray that we would each do that from a place of divine, supernatural mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.